going to go ahead and uh, start our new Sunday school lesson. First, we'll dismiss our children and teenagers uh, for Sunday school, so teens and young folks can be dismissed for Sunday school. If you don't have one of our new lessons, lesson number 12, uh, Brother Mott's passing those out now. Put your hand up, I'll get one to you. Lesson number 12, and we're looking at a lesson on restoration. A lesson on restoration. And as you're receiving your lesson, if you don't have one already, open your Bibles to John 21. The Gospel of John chapter 21, the last chapter. The last chapter, the last Gospel uh, in your New Testament there, John 21. And we're going to look at the first 19 verses, if you'll follow along with me uh, here. Anyone else still need to get one? It's good to have Kamir with us today. That's uh, uh, Mata Mitra's son-in-law. And uh, I'm praying uh, I'm praying that his wife and kids are here soon too. Be praying for them. And a bit of a transition and work for them. It's good to see him here this morning. And also good to have uh, Kevin. Kevin has his brother with him today. Thanks for being with us and glad you could visit with us today. And uh, just a, a great day we have together. Look at uh, John 22, and we'll look at verses 1 through 20, uh, 1 through 19. John 21, verse 1. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And on this wise showed he himself. There were together Simon Peter and Thomas, called Didymus, and Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and two other of his disciples. Simon Peter saith unto them, I go a fishing. And they say unto him, We also go with thee. They went forth and entered into a ship immediately, and that night they caught nothing. But when the morning was now come, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples knew not that it was Jesus. Then Jesus saith unto them, Children, have ye any meat? And they answered him, No. And he saith unto them, Cast the net on the right side of the ship, and ye shall find. They cast therefore, and now they were not able to draw it for a multitude of fishes. Therefore that disciple whom Jesus loved saith unto Peter, It is the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he girt his fisher's coat unto him, for he was naked. And he did cast himself into the sea, and the other disciples came in a little ship, for they were not far from land, but as it were two hundred cubits, dragging the net with fishes. And as soon as they were come to land, they saw a fire of coals there, and fish laid thereon and bread. And Jesus saith unto them, Bring of the fish which ye have now caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of great fishes, a hundred and fifty and three. And for all there were so many, yet was not the net broken. And Jesus saith unto them, Come and dine. And none of the disciples durst ask him, Who art thou, knowing that it was the Lord? And Jesus then cometh and taketh bread and giveth them, and fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus showed himself unto his disciples after he was risen from the dead. So when they had dined, Jesus saith unto Simon Peter, Simon, Son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? 
He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my lambs. He saith unto him again the second time, Simon, son of Jonas, Lovest thou me? And he saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my sheep. Verse 17, he saith unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, Lovest thou me? Peter was grieved because he said unto him the third time, Lovest thou me? And he said unto him, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. And Jesus saith unto him, Feed my sheep. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, When thou wast young, thou girdest thyself, and walkest whether thou wouldest. But when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands, and another shall gird thee, and carry thee whether thou wouldest not. This spake he, signifying by what death he should glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he saith unto him, Follow me. Let's pray together. Lord, what a powerful message. What a powerful passage of Scripture we have to examine the next few Sundays in our adult Sunday school class here. Lord, as we see this beautiful picture of restoration. Lord, I'm so thankful that you don't throw us away. I'm so thankful that we are not discarded because we're not perfect. Lord, for we are not perfect. We fail. But Lord, I'm thankful that you love us based upon your perfection, not ours. Amen. You want to restore us. You want to use us. And Lord, I pray you'd help us as we look in this passage together this morning. Lord, would you meet the needs in our heart? Lord, I pray that we would understand your truth. Lord, I pray maybe that we would see in our own life some areas where we need to reach out for restoration to others. Some areas where we need to realize that we need to follow your pattern. Lord, it may be that we, like Peter, need to come to you, need to confess. As Peter confessed three times, I love you. Once for every time, he denied the Lord. And Lord, I pray that we would seek restoration. I pray that we would offer restoration. I pray we'd understand the doctrine, Lord, as we begin it this morning. Now, Lord, would you help us? In your precious name we pray. Amen. About 20 years ago, maybe 21 years ago now, my family and I, and uh, my family at the time consisted of Carrie and Rebecca and Elizabeth, and they were very little. Uh, Elizabeth was just a baby at the time, I think, or uh, maybe two, three years old. Hannah wasn't even on the way yet. And a dear friend of mine, uh, his name is Kim, Kim Whittington. He went to the church with my parents. and I had known Kim for several years. And, uh, Kim had a, some rental properties in West Virginia, and, and he dealt with some low-end rental properties. And uh, as you deal with that kind of stuff, you deal with folks that uh, uh, don't pay their bills uh, you deal with folks that leave junk and all kinds of issues. And uh, he had a, a tenant at a property that had not paid their bill for a, long, for a long time. And they left a bunch of junk on the property and left. And one of the things they left was an old uh, GMC Suburban. And it was rough. 
And he finally talked with them, and he kept the vehicle as payment for what they owed him. They owed him more than that, but he was trying to clear it all out. And uh, Kim's a Christian, good man. He was had been trying to lead these folks to Christ, and he uh, showed much grace and much mercy with them. And he called me up, and he said, hey, Brother Brian, he said, could you use a Suburban? And in my mind, I had not lived in Canada yet, and and I thought, man, I need a four-wheel drive vehicle to live in the city of Edmonton. I was wrong. I don't need a four-wheel drive vehicle to live in the city of Edmonton, but I'd never lived in Canada before. And I thought, yeah, absolutely. I said, we need a four-wheel drive vehicle. I've got to have one. We're going to live in Canada. And so he gave me this vehicle. I went to pick it up and drive it home. It was disgusting. It had been parked on that property for a few years. Animals had taken up residence inside of the vehicle. Little animals with little short tails. And uh, he opened the door and they went scurrying all their ways. And uh, there was m mouse nest and mouse other things. Uh, it was pretty gross. And when you started it up, it got rid of every mosquito within about a five-mile radius because the valves uh, had some serious blow-by, and it smoked like a banshee. And, I mean, you could just fire it up, and you couldn't see for about a mile around the vehicle from all the smoke. And I limped that ugly, disgusting truck to my parents' home. I parked it back behind the building there on the farm. And I began to decide what I was going to do. I decided I needed to tear the top end down because I knew I needed a valve job. It was obvious it needed a valve job. And it was a 350 engine. It would be a pretty simple job to do. So eventually I pulled the vehicle into the garage and I popped the hood, and I began to remove the heads, remove the intake, and remove the heads. And I had all the parts off, and I was going to take them down to the machine shop to get a valve job done. And I was looking down inside the engine bay, and I'm looking at that short block. Uh, so just the, uh, the block itself with the crank and the pistons, for those of you that aren't familiar. So half the engine's already taken apart. And I looked down and I thought, boy, it'd be kind of stupid to just, I got it this far. So I pulled the whole engine. I pulled it apart. I rebuilt the entire engine. I had a valve job done. I bored it 30 over, put new rings and pistons and all the parts in it. And then I went inside the mouse house. That's the inside of the vehicle. I took all the seats out of the vehicle. I took all the carpet. The carpet was yellow, and I'm not going to tell you why, but I took all the carpet out of the vehicle. I took the headliner, the headliner that the mice had lived in, took it out of the vehicle. And I found a, a cheap set of carpet and a cheap headliner, and I replaced it, and I vacuumed and scrubbed all the seats, the cloth seats, and got them clean and put them back in. And I got a set of wheels and a set of tires, and it was a nice vehicle when I was done. But I remember the first time I got in that vehicle, I went, I'm not sure if Kim is my friend or not. <laughs> I mean, he just wanted me to get this heap off his property. It needed restoration. 
Now, I did not drive that vehicle to Canada. I had about uh, three months later, or two months later, I had a dear friend who at the time was a missionary at Rock of Ages prison ministry. He, his wife, and two teenage children, or three kids actually, were traveling across the country, uh, living in their vehicle pretty much in a car. And uh, they were at a conference, and they came to my parents' house. I said, John, I got something I got to give you. And uh, we drove across town, and I, he didn't know what we were doing. I went and I had the bill of sale, and I, I signed the vehicle over to him and gave him the key. He said, here, drive this thing. Don't drive that, pe- that little car across the country. But that vehicle, that vehicle needed restoration. Now, we can understand that from a physical standpoint. Now, those of you that uh, maybe have some uh, history working with engines or vehicles, you go, oh, yeah, I, you, know, you could take that and see some potential there. But why is it that we look at human beings, which are way more valuable than any chunk of metal, we look at lives that are the intrinsic value beyond anything. The Bible says, what would a man trade in exchange for his soul? Anything. No matter, we give anything. I have a dear friend right now who lays in a hospital. She's in a coma or kept... Uh, she's intubated right now. Very good chance that in the next days to come, she'll pass on to eternity. She's three years younger than me. Her family would pay anything, anything, for her to leave that hospital room. We see a person, a human being, a soul for whom Christ died, And yet so often we want to toss it away. I'm sure glad that our God is still in the restoration business. I'm glad that God doesn't look at us and toss us away like a dirty rag. And rather we see here, and we're going to look and begin in this study, and I I believe such a a vital truth we look at this morning, this lesson on restoration as we see Peter Now, remember, Peter has just denied the Lord. Peter has just said to his, his brothers, I'm going fishing. He's so far off the road of the course of where God wants him to be. He's so far removed from the purpose that God had for him. What was it? What was God's purpose? Peter, follow me. And yet we see in this passage the restoration of Christ. We see Christ's seaside conversation here in John 21. We have a perfect example, I believe, here in this passage of how we ought to deal with others. By the way, we want Jesus to deal with us this way. We want Jesus to deal with us like he dealt with Peter. We, we want that. Christian, why is it we don't want to deal with others the way that Jesus dealt with Peter? Why is it we want to remove ourselves from others when they don't meet our expectation? We're not being like Christ. If anything, we're being like the devil. I'm reminded of the prodigal's father. As the prodigal was away, we see him looking and watching, waiting for the prodigal to come home. Not so he could beat him. Not so he could say, I told you so. 
so we could restore him as Jesus restored Peter. I read an illustration I want to read to you. Uh, A young mother shared this story. She said, tonight my daughter took a scary tumble of almost six feet off the bench on our deck to the grass below. After months and months of telling her, no, ma'am, get down, no, you'll fall. And after physically removing her off the bench many times, she sneaked one in on mommy. She climbed up on the bench. And she got the scare of her little two-year-old life. as she tumbled off of that bench, off of the deck, onto the ground below. Miraculously, my little one was spared injury. Obviously shaken up a bit. The woman said, I suppose I, it could have made me upset with her. But I wasn't. I was sad for her. And with her. I didn't say I told you so. I simply held her close, sighed a thankful prayer of relief, dried her tears, and reminded her of the importance of obeying what mommy and daddy tells her. Thinking about it now, this mother said, it reminds me of how God is with me when I disobey. I know exactly what my biggest temptations are, and yet I won't stay away from them. I try to get as close as I can without getting hurt. However, there are always consequences for disobedience. When I am battered and bruised and torn and crying, tears of pain and repentance over the mess I've made with my own two hands, the Lord doesn't leave me to cry alone. He picks me up, dusts me off, and reminds me gently that he loves me. And an obedience to his word keeps me safe. Psalm 119 verse 11. Thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. In John 21 here in our text, in verses 1 through 19, we see how Jesus restores Peter to a place of fellowship. To to a place of not only fellowship, but to a place of fellowship. Uh, to a place of service, and how powerful it is. Uh, where there had once been doubt, we see that there was delight. Where there had once been failure, tremendous failure, catastrophic failure, now there will be victory. Victory. This is what Christ wants to see in our lives. And by the way, this is what we ought to endeavor not only to see in our lives, but we ought to endeavor to help others reach that place in their life. As we minister, as we encourage, as we strive together uh, for the cause of Christ. That should be our goal, our purpose, our focus for Christ. Number one in your notes here this morning, I want to see first of all futility. Futility. It's been said that the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. We see that Peter and the other disciples had descended into a little bit of insanity. They had descended into futility. 
uselessness. Verses 1 through 8, we see them as Peter said, Fellas, I'm going fishing. Christian, can I remind you, your decisions do not only affect you. When Peter said, I'm going fishing, there were several men who said, okay, we'll go with you. Your decision affects others. Peter was not an island unto himself. Peter went fishing. He went out, he got on a boat, he did what he knew, he went back to his old lifestyle. And what happened in that night was uselessness. A couple years ago, uh, Brother Darren and Brother Herman and I went hunting together. And Rebecca and Josh, I think, were there that day. And we had been by that area many times. I have over the years. And there's a beautiful lake. Beautiful lake. Camping area. I mean, it's, it's beautiful. And... Most of you know I like to fish. And I was talking to Brother Darren. I said, man, I said, do you think there's any fish in that lake? And he said, there's only one way to find out. So when we went hunting that day, we brought some fishing poles with us. And we stopped there at that place. It's picturesque, man. It could be a postcard of Canada. It is beautiful there. And we had lunch there. We, we feasted. We had, we had adobo that day. That was really good, Teresa. Where's Teresa? Uh, we need some more. Ah, there she is, hiding back there. Uh, we, we, we had some, some pretty good stuff that day. We had lunch. and After lunch, I got a fishing pole. Darren got a fishing pole. Herman got a fishing pole. And we went out, and we, for about an hour, you know what we found out, Brother Krim? There's no fish in that lake. I mean, you could fish in a bathtub and catch just as many fish. Uh, you could fish in the mud hole behind your house, catch just as many fish. There's no fish there. It's a dead lake. Now, it's beautiful. It looks good. But there's no life there. Peter was going through the motions. He was casting the net. He was doing everything he knew to do his whole life. He was with some men that knew how to do it. He was fishing in the place where there was fish, and yet everything they did was futile didn't matter imagine if you will they look and they see someone on the shore and they see a fire I, I could be wrong the Bible doesn't say this but my personal thought is that the wind was blowing from the shore out to the boat I think they could smell by their mud the fish cooking over the coals I think they could smell that fresh bread on the coals. I think they were getting hungry out there as they look and they saw the the glow in the distance and they saw a man in the distance and they, they smelled that food that was cooking on the shore. And I'm sure Peter looked at John and said, man, I wish we'd catch a fish. I'm starving. James looked at John and said, man, why'd you, why'd you talk us into coming with Peter? Peter's an idiot. Uh, why do we follow him? In their futility. In the futility, we see that they see Jesus. Can I tell you, Satan tries to tempt us, to discourage us, often during times of weakness. When was it that Satan came to tempt Jesus? 
Satan waited until our Lord had fasted 40 days and nights and then said, hey, I'll, I'll turn this stone into bread for you. Hey, worship me, I'll give you all this. Kind of like about a month and a half ago when I first injured my shoulder. I came in and Brother Mike, Brother Mike's not here for me to harass. You tell him I harassed him later. Uh, Brother Mike walked in. He said, Brother, he said Preacher, let's, I want to arm wrestle you today. Uh, he was ready to arm wrestle me. Why well, I was not, I was, I was pretty weak. Can I tell you, the devil tries to attack us when we're there. And when we disobey the Lord, when we fail in his purpose, can I tell you, no matter what you do with your life, it will be empty. By the way, I don't care if your bank account's full, your life will be empty. I don't care if your friend list is enormous on your social media, can I tell you that your life will be empty? Because without Christ, we are futile. We see that picture here. We see Peter had caught nothing. When we're weak, when we trust the Lord, we can be strong. 2 Corinthians, we're reminded, the Bible tells us in chapter 12, verses 7 through 10, God gave to Paul to pen to the church at Corinth. Unless I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice and it might depart from me. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in my infirmities and reproaches and necessities and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. Now, remember Peter, James, John, the other disciples, uh, Thomas, they're, they're on the boat and, and they look in the distance and they see a man on the shore. And, and I believe they probably smell the food, the fish and the bread. And, and as they get close enough, they hear the words that nobody likes to hear when you've had a failure of a day in fishing or hunting. <laughs> hey, did you catch anything? And you want to say, shut up. <laughs> don't, don't even ask me that. Remember a couple years ago before Rebecca and Josh got married, we were at our uh, Heritage Day uh, float down the Red Deer River. Darren and I are coming down the river and and Rebecca and Josh were in a mod's kayak. They borrowed a two-seater kayak. And they're fishing. We get to where they are, and I see them fishing. They're really, Josh is just, he's really, he's an amazing fisherman. And they're fishing. And I caught a lot of fish that day. And I said to them, hey, how many fish have you caught? And Rebecca, very angrily, because she's rather competitive, said, None! And I could see the water was super clear. I could see under their boat, and I could see Sauger there laying on the gravel right under their boat. And I got about from here to Josh, about this far from their boat, and I cast under the boat. I pulled a fish out, tossed it in their boat. I cast, I got another fish and tossed it in their boat, and then I, I went away. They were mad. Uh, they caught nothing all day, and I just caught two under their boat and tossed them in their boat. Uh, Peter, I'm sure, was not happy 
when he heard those words. Hey, caught anything? No, I don't want to talk about it. He was confronting the reality of how empty and how fruitless his life had been without Jesus Christ. We see letter A here in your notes this morning. We see the disciples were faithless. Now hold on a minute. We're going to look in verse 14. Let's go ahead and look there. It says, this is now the third time that Jesus showed himself to his disciples after that he was risen from the dead. Now let's, let's go back now. So when they see Jesus on the shore, this is not the first time. That means when Peter said, I go a fishing, two times already. And Jesus had appeared to them. Two times already they knew Jesus rose from the dead. And yet, I'm going fishing. Faithless. Faithless. Out on the boat when Jesus said, follow me, but yet they went back to what they were doing. We see they were faithless. Jesus had died. He'd been buried. He'd, rose and he'd risen again. He'd shown himself twice before. We see in verse 14. He commanded them to follow him. He commanded them to be fishers of men in Mark chapter, or Matthew chapter 4, verse 19. The disciples were following Christ, who had proven that he was God. He had commissioned them and sent them forth to do great work. But sadly, we see them. Lacking faith. Christian, I, I wonder if you, like me, see yourself in those men. We know he's risen again. We know the Bible's true. We know that he's all-powerful. We know that he said that we can have our requests from him. We know all of that. And yet, we sometimes lack faith. Sometimes we're faithless. The disciples were there. They were faithless. There was a time when that same man who's naked out on the boat fishing that night had said before, Peter, the one who said, I go a fishing, Peter, who had denied the Lord, Peter, who was now in a futile situation, his life not productive. At one point in Peter's life, Peter had said, Lo, we've left all to follow thee. And by the way, he was speaking the truth. Mark chapter 10, verse 28. Luke 18, verse 28. He was saying, Lord, Jesus, we've surrendered everything to you, it's all yours. Our life belongs to you. We believe in you. Peter would say, where would we go? I mean, Lord, thou hast the words to eternal life. Lord, I'll go with you all the way. Lord, I'll die for you. And he goes from there to just a few days later. Faithless. Christian, our, our spiritual life sometimes looks like a roller coaster. 
I sat beside a fellow on the airplane when I flew to Nashville last Thursday a week ago. And as we were talking, the fellow was a Christian, and uh, he was sharing some things, and he was talking about uh, roller coasters. He's a roller coaster nut. He loves roller coasters. And he was telling me all these roller coasters he'd been on. Uh, Colton, he was in one in Sweden, even. He, uh, he'd been in lots of roller coasters. And he was talking about them in terms that I wasn't familiar with, all these different things. He's telling me, I said, man, what's your favorite roller coaster? What's the best roller coaster? And I found out I had ridden his number three, <laughs> the number three roller coaster on his list. And he's ridden a lot of roller coasters. I rode the Kraken roller coaster in uh, SeaWorld in, in Florida, the roller coaster that made me decide I'm never riding a roller coaster again. Uh, I, was, I was praying, oh, God of Jehovah, of Abraham, of Isaac, get me off of this thing. I, it was wicked. I mean, up and down and up and down and around and around and around. I wonder how many times our spiritual life looks a lot like a crazy roller coaster. I mean, Peter... Right at the top of the peak, Lord, I'll die for you. Lord, I'll go all the way. I'm going fishing. And we laugh at Peter and we mock at Peter. You know why? Because it's easier to laugh at him than it is to laugh at ourselves. It's easier to point our scorn at Peter because we don't want to point the scorn at us. But we become pretty faithless sometimes. The disciples were faithless. As Christians, we need to realize that it's easy to sing the song. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. That's not a hard song to sing, but it's a hard song to live. Peter was struggling with that. The other disciples were struggling with that. They, they did turn back. They, they probably longed for the good old days, but they were living in the bad days. They turned away. The Israelites were a perfect example of this. The Israelites, when they left Egypt, they'd been freed from slavery. They've been freed from years of oppression and abuse. They were spared from Pharaoh's armies as they would cross the Red Sea as God would close the sea upon Pharaoh's army and swallow up their enemy. They were fed. They were provided for. They'd seen water come out of a rock in a desert. Yet even with all those things, They're far away from Egypt. They're far away from the oppression and the horrible things. By the way, their children were thrown into the, into the river and killed. Think about that. They were beaten. They were made to labor. They were hated. They were despised. Pharaoh tried to kill them. God brought them all the way. God fed them. God provided for them. And now they're in a place following God's leader and God's direction the pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night. And what'd they say? 
flood. Wish I was back in Egypt. Wish I was back having those leeks and garlics. Hey, man, you want to? We should just go back. That's crazy, isn't it? No crazier than a Christian. Looking at the past life, looking at sin, looking at a life away from Christ and saying, man, I think I'm going to go back there. That's what Peter did. We're talking about the man who would preach on Pentecost. He's faithless right now. John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, he's with them. They're faithless. They're, they're looking back. They're turning back. The first man to fly solo across the We died there for a second, Brother Darren. I think our whole sound system died. There we go. Charles Lindbergh's not happy that I'm talking about him. But the first man to fly solo across the Atlantic was Charles Lindbergh. In 1927. Ms. Lois, do you remember that? You don't remember? No reason. I started asking. You understand in those days... That was a severe risk. We're not talking about, oh, that'll be a nice stunt. We'll fly around. No. Severe, amazing thing. Lindbergh would reveal later in his autobiography how he, the entire time, the first part of the trip was beset by doubts and fears. As he was flying, he said the first half of the trip, he thought, man, maybe I should turn back. Man, maybe this isn't a good idea. That's a dumb idea. Why did I do this? But he said something happened when he crossed the halfway point. He said when he crossed the halfway point, he realized that he was closer to Europe than he was to the Americas. And he no longer had enough fuel to turn around to go back. So he continued on to Paris. He would complete the 33 and a half hour trip and become a national hero in the process. Christians, I wish we'd see ourselves as Lindbergh saw himself halfway across the Atlantic. I wish we'd realize we're closer home to where God wants us to be. I wish we'd learned to trust him and just believe him, but so often we doubt in faith. We need to commit ourselves to the Lord. After he crossed that halfway point, Lindbergh was committed. He could not go back. Christian, may we be committed. But Peter was faithless. There's an old chorus that goes like this, After all he's done for me, after all he's done for me, how can I do less than give him my best and live for him completely after all he's done for me? We see the disciples were faithless. Let her be there in your notes. The disciples were fruitless. And I mentioned this already, but in verse 5, And Jesus saith unto them, Children, have ye any meat? And they answered him, These guys are fishermen. 
They knew how to fish. They knew where to fish. They knew all about the place. They knew the area. They knew it. And yet they were fruitless. I touched on it earlier, but Christian, can I remind you that you and I will be fruitless if we are not connected to the vine? We're fruitless in whatever we do if we are not fulfilling God's purpose for our life. Fruitless. There's no, there's no value. You know, if you go out and you take an apple tree and you cut a branch off the apple tree and stick that branch in the ground before in the spring, and then you wait for apples to grow on that branch. Christian, can I tell you no apples are going to grow on that branch? Why? It's separated from the tree. It's separated from the tree. We are fruitless. We are useless in anything we do when we're not following the pattern of Jesus Christ. We see here they, they were fruitless. Satan tries to tell us, hey, just you should go back to what you know. Life's hard. You're discouraged. Things aren't going the way you want. You got some doubts. Just, just go back. I'm going to go back to a life of fruitlessness. A life of incompleteness. A life in our comfort zone where there really is no comfort of heart. We leave God's will looking for an easy way to find that at the end of the rainbow there is no pot of gold. There's just an emptiness that doesn't go away. Peter was living that emptiness on that boat that night. James and John, Thomas, those other, and the other two disciples, they were living that emptiness. The psalmist said in Psalm 116, verse, or Psalm 16, excuse me, verse 11, in thy presence is fullness of joy. Now the opposite is true. When I leave the presence of God, I leave the presence of the fullness of joy. They'd understood that. The believer who's walking with Christ realizes there's peace, there's fulfillment that can never be achieved in the world. Psalm 4, verse 6, there be many that say, who will show us any good? Lord, lift thou up the light of thy countenance upon us. Psalm 16, 11, thou wilt show me the path of life, and the presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures evermore. Psalm 36, verse 5, thy mercy, O Lord, is the heavens, and thy faithfulness reaches into the clouds. Thy righteousness is like the great mountains. Thy judgments are a great deep. O Lord, thou preservest man and beast. How excellent is thy loving kindness, O God. Therefore the children of men put their trust under the shadow of thy wings. They shall be abundantly satisfied with the fatness of thy house. And thou shalt make them drink of the river of thy pleasure. For with thee is the fountain of life. And thy light shall we see light. Psalm 84 speaks of the goodness of God, the blessing of God's presence. I joked about fishing in that pond or that lake with no fish but there's an old illustration told of a man who was found happily fishing in a mud hole and he was asked don't you know there's no fish there and his answer was yes 
but it's close to my house. A lot of times we do that which is convenient, even if it's fruitless. We do that which is in our comfort zone, even if it doesn't lead anywhere we want to go. If you want joy, you want satisfaction, can I tell you that only exists as we follow Christ. It was Peter who had said to them, I go fishing. The other disciples followed him as believers. As I mentioned, we need to realize our decision affects others. Quick illustration, I'll close this morning. In the November 2014 issue of the Reader's Digest, contained a story from Texas Monthly called The Family That Robbed Banks. This was the heading. Widower Scott Catt had a secret life as a bank robber. But when he wanted accomplices, he turned to his two people he trusted most in the world, his kids. Although reluctant at first, they came, to the realize, they came to rationalize it. He did it so quickly and easily that it planted a seed, said the son later. I thought my dad really does know what he's doing. The daughter's thinking was, this is something I felt like I had to do. I don't want to let dad down. The son accompanied the father into the banks while the daughter drove the getaway car after two successful heists. The third try resulted in their arrest and the father leading both his children into prison. I wonder how many of us are guilty of leading somebody into walking away from Jesus Christ, into a life of fruitlessness, into a life of not following Christ. We just began to skim the surface a bit this morning. Next week we're going to talk about this reclamation, this rebuilding, this reopening of an opportunity for Peter. Let's pray together this morning. Lord, thank you for your great love for us. Thank you for the desire you have to use us. Thank you for your love that is dependent upon your grace and your mercy, not upon our action. Lord, I pray you bless us. Lord, I pray you'd help us to realize you want to use us. God, help us to have the same attitude with others. God, help us not to be guilty of throwing people away. Help us not to value things more than we value people and lives and relationships. Lord, help us to love as you loved. Help us to love the world. Bless us now, Lord. Be with us in our service to come. In your precious name we pray, amen.